and welcome to the Q York podcast, brought to you from our local church in the beautiful city of York in the UK. The message you're about to hear is from one of our services, which also feature great live music and relevant movie clips. These can all be found on our blog, so to make sure you're getting the full experience, feel free to head over to qyork.co.uk and select blog to find the relevant content. There's also a huge selection of talks and live music videos on our media page, as well as a donate button if you'd like to show your appreciation and enable us to keep producing free content like this. Finally, to stay up to date on new blogs and events at Q, you can sign up for emails by filling in your name and email address at the bottom of any page on the website. But right now, it's time for the message. Thanks very much. Um, you can see I'm feeling more at home. I'm, I'm dressing down. <laughs> it's the talk after the next talk you need to worry about. I just want to tell you a really quick story before the first clip. In, in 2014, I took my daughter and my goddaughter to see Justin Bieber at the O2. Now, I wasn't super thrilled about this, and I arrived in a suit from work quite late. And the queue, I couldn't see the end of the queue. And so I said to the two of them, just follow me, look ahead. And I walked straight through the VIP entrance, and I gave security a nod, as if I at least owned the O2, or, or, possibly, or possibly it was Justin Bieber's manager. So we managed to avoid the queue. This isn't the story, by the way. We managed to avoid the queue, and we were sat there. But we didn't manage to, uh, to avoid Cody Simpson, who was the support act. And, uh, my daughter reminded me of this about two weeks ago. He said, he goes, do you mind if I just get a bit more comfortable? And he kind of slipped off his jacket and he had you know, like a buff physique and a vest on. And according to Christy, my daughter, I shouted, yes, I do. <laughs> so today is all about the importance of minority opinions. And I managed one on that day, but it's taken me a bit longer in the field of belief to get to the same place, and that's what today's about. We have the first clip. That's a Spielberg film, yeah, from 2002. And it's set in Washington, D.C. in 2054. And there's a unit in the police called Pre-Crime, and they have those floating people who see they have premonitions of crimes before they happen, and they go and arrest the people before the crime takes place. And Colin Farrell, uh, a very young Colin Farrell, uh, who apparently had three years at Fuller Seminary, <laughs> which I thought was quite funny, is basically saying, even though it seems to be working, it's a human system, and it must have Flaws. So, could we have the slides up, please? And could we have the next one? Here's a quick quiz. Uh, what is the collective noun for wolves? A pack of wolves. 
What's the collective noun for lions? What's the collective name for sharks? It's a shiver. A shiver of sharks. And what is the collective noun for dogmas? I'm, there isn't one. I'm suggesting it's an orthodoxy of dogmas, all right, for the purposes today. Orthodoxy comes from the Greek word um, orthos, which means correct, and doxa, which means belief. However, orthodoxy is actually passed down through institutions and through people. Colin Farrell said, the powers with the priests, even if you have to make up the oracle. And so orthodoxy began to form with those councils that I actually mentioned the last time I was here, the seven so-called ecumenical councils. And then after the Reformation, orthodoxy was formed more directly from the Bible. And we ended up with fundamentalism. By the way, um, that came about through two brothers, Milton and Lyman Stewart, think the Cravens. Um, they published some pamphlets called the, F the Fundamentals, and that's where fundamentalism was born. Maybe you thought that it came from the word fun at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> so let me just locate myself in this whole thing just briefly. Because despite the fact, and you can probably tell from the story, I'm not a hugely conforming individual, um, but th theologically, for most of my life, I've defended evangelical orthodoxy. In fact, I've been one of the people who passes it down. And I was the safest of safe pair of hands. I could be given any topic, no matter how complicated, no matter how sensitive. And I could bring it within the boundaries of orthodoxy. And I've done that for my whole life. Until, until the day that I looked at something and I thought, Really? Really? Because to me, I was in the middle of, of, of my divorce, and I was looking at all this theology of condemnation and pain, and yet I had an overwhelming sense of the love of God. And now I had a gap, a big gap, between my experience of God and the dogma of the theology of divorce. And... I couldn't sustain it anymore. And as soon as I'd had that experience, I looked around me at, at the other people on the receiving end of similar things, like the LGBTQ community, and I, I realized I couldn't sustain that either for the same reason, and my orthodoxy began to dissolve. But let me just be honest with you, it still worries me stepping outside. It's still, I still worry that when I'm talking in the way I'm doing this morning, I'm drawing people away from the truth. I'm 
still wrestling with that. It's still some, I think I'll probably wrestle with it for the rest of my life. Uh, but it's there. So I, I just make it personal because this morning is a little bit history lesson, a little bit theology. There's even some maths. Um, so just remember when it's got unbearable, this is actually a really personal story for me in the end. So, going back to orthodoxy and the way it's formed, it is in the end a human system. People decide, they interpret the Bible, and they make decisions about what it says, and then they institutionalize those decisions. And then, if we can have the next slide, they tend to defend the border. You see, those those ecumenical councils started quite well. The first four, I think, were more or less genuine inquiries into the truth. But by the fifth, which was the Council of Constantinople the second, the Pope was imprisoned because he refused to attend. Emperor Justinian I excluded heretics from civic and religious life, or executed them and burned their churches. Any bishop who didn't sign up to the results of that council was exiled to the Egyptian desert. So by the fifth council, what started as trying to understand who Jesus was, a genuine honest inquiry, had ended with an institutionalized religion defending its border through fear. And you might say, well, that doesn't really happen today. But forms of that do happen, and I think you know that because I think you've been on the receiving end of it. The sanctions might be more subtle, but they're there. And there is suffering for people who step over the border of orthodoxy. The pattern of organized Christianity is that Authentic spirituality ends up being institutionalized and conformity is defended through fear. Can we have the next slide, please? I, uh, there's no graphic for this because I just found it all too disturbing, to be honest. I have dredged through in preparing this talk the very worst of the church's own history. Sadly, this is not exhaustive at all. And these are very prominent people who form the basis of our theological system. Augustine started it. I know Joel's a big fan of Augustine. Uh, <laughs> he justified violence towards people with wrong beliefs. The Spanish Inquisition, I think, is up there with any set of war crimes in the modern era and it actually went on for 200 years. It was completely adopted into the church's fabric and society's fabric. Calvin argued that heretics were worse than murderers. Friends of Luther were drowning Anabaptists. For, get this, pacifism. The Dutch Reformed Church had an elaborate biblical justification for apartheid. And prayer meetings were held in Capitol Hill 
while it was being stormed on January the 6th, 2021. What, what these things failed is actually the ultimate test of orthodoxy, which came out of the mouth of Jesus, that we love not just our neighbors as ourselves, but our enemies too. And if church history could just have managed to conform to that, I think we'd have had a very, very different story. Next slide, please. So do we give up? This is Thomas Talbot, who I'll come back to. I really like him. I'm now inclined then to draw a relatively sharp distinction between the Christian faith on the one hand and the organized Christian church on the other, and I'm quite prepared to see the latter as more often than not an enemy of the former. Should we just give up? Should we pursue our own individual faith, scatter to the four winds, and just call it a day? It's tempting. It's tempting. But I do think there's another way. Could we just have the next slide, please? This is from maths. But it's not really. So, bounded set versus a centered set. A bounded set has things that are in it and things that are out of it. It's got a border. And bounded set churches, you can spot them because they have a statement of faith usually on their website. And that tells you what the border is, although there's usually a lot more to it than the statement of faith. I did find one that was really funny, but I decided I, I wouldn't have time to take you through it. But it's six pages long. Um, it, it explains the role of women, um, all sorts of amazing, amazing things that I think you'd have loved, but I, I don't have the time. I don't have the time. By the way, in preparing, I've, I've made up in my head a story about almost all those little people. If you, if you have a look at them as to why they're in the situation that they're in. But there is an alternative to a bounded set. It's a centered set. So there is a center, it's not just completely random, but there isn't a border. And you can be traveling towards the center, or maybe even away from the center, but you're still part of the set. And I think that's what Q Church is. Now that's got the cross at the center, but I was listening with interest to the talk by Joel, Jenny, and uh, what's the lady's name? Hannah, yeah, um, about the journey uh, from slavery to freedom being a, a central theme. So maybe for now that, that's the center of the centered set. But I think you said, Joel, that perhaps we're still in search of one at Q, uh, something else to follow. But it's possible to have a centered set without having a boundary. You don't have to have a defined orthodoxy that places people on the outside. And that could be the way in which we institute a non-institution and avoid some of the horrors of the past. Let me just have the next slide. <clears throat> and the reason it's so important is that orthodoxy is a human system, and Colin Farrell is right, it's flawed. 
It's always flawed. And history has shown that again and again and again. That is a picture of the, of the, of the solar system with the Earth in the middle. And you can see the sun is revolving around it. That's called wrong. <laughs> and yet Galileo, who discovered it, had to renounce his views under huge pressure from the authorities, secular and religious. And it's only science and history that vindicated him in the end. So the problem with orthodoxy is not just that it's divisive, it has a border, and it places people on the outside. It's also got flaws, and those flaws have got to be recognized and addressed. Human apprehension of truth, I've said this before, my belief is it's partial, it's provisional, and it's fallible. And so is orthodoxy, and that means it has to be examined. And the way that wrong orthodoxies have been overturned in history, and that's what I'm going to look at next, is actually when someone files a minority report that's contrary to the prevailing orthodoxy. Let's have clip two. So I just want to talk about something briefly that happened in history as an illustration of what happens when someone files a minority report to overturn an orthodoxy. We just have the next one. Here's the biblical case for slavery. You don't hear that very often, but here it is. Ham is cursed in Genesis 9 and doomed to the service of his brothers. At some point, he becomes black in history. Uh, we don't quite know how that happens because it's his brothers who presumably are genetically similar to him, but apparently that, that happened nonetheless. Paul writes in Ephesians, slaves obey your earthly masters with respect and fear. Um, in, in Philemon, it's a whole book about slaves, and basically Paul is asking the slave owner to be merciful to a slave who, who's run away because he's found faith. The Ten Commandments uh, mentions slavery twice, and the Old Testament prohibits shellfish, but institutionalizes slavery. And then Jesus also uses slave illustrations and doesn't speak out against it. You can't say that there's not a case to be made here, can you? I mean, there's something there, right? Can we have the next slide, please? I think this is important, whether you agree with it or not, but think about it, because I think something is happening. Jenny asked the question, is the Bible on the move? And I think the Bible is on the move, or maybe the Bible isn't on the move, but we need to be. <clears throat> What's that trying to say? It's basically saying, in the original culture of the Bible captured within it, there were some very regressive practices. In general, the Bible's ethics improve on them, and so in the slavery case, there was a move to improve the lot of slaves and to treat them well and to consider them as brothers. And of course, we also get the 
There's neither slave nor free. So this was very, very progressive in the context in which the Bible was written. However, time has continued. Culture has continued. In some ways, it's gone backwards, but in some ways, it's gone forwards. And now, as we look back at the Bible, what's in there can look regressive, not progressive. What this is suggesting is if we look at the essence of what took the step forward in the original context, it doesn't have to stop there. We can imagine what that becomes. And that's what's called there the ultimate ethic. So the Bible doesn't have to be this frozen-in-time book where its ethical content applies to us in some mindless way today, some contextless way. What we need to do is find the spirit of it and bring it all the way through to the ultimate ethic. We have the next slide, please. Sometimes the people who see things in a new way are on the margins. They're unusual people. This is a picture in the National Portrait Gallery of Benjamin Lay. Benjamin Lay was four foot seven and a hunchback. How cruel is it to be four foot seven and bent over? That, that's, and he called himself Little Benjamin. He was, he was um, a man before his time. He was a vegetarian. He was a feminist. He was a campaigner for the ethical treatment of animals. And he, he moved to Barbados and he saw the terrible treatment of slaves. And he became someone who then campaigned for the abolition of slavery for the rest of his life. But he did not do it quietly. He, he was thrown out of four Quaker meeting groups he stood in the winter with no shoes on and no coat to illustrate the conditions that slaves were kept in. His most theatrical trip, trick is he put some fake blood in a hollowed out Bible and went into the meeting of all the Quakers, many of whom uh, were trading slaves, stuck a sword in it and covered them all in the fake blood suggesting to them that that's what God was going to do to them if they didn't actually mend their ways. Um, eventually, and it, it, it took a very long time, Quakers started to discipline and disown the slave owners. And when he heard about this, he said this, Thanksgiving and praise be rendered unto the Lord God. I can now die in peace. And he did within a year. I think Benjamin Lay caught the ultimate ethic. He didn't stop at be nice to slaves. He realized the entire institution of slavery was wrong, and he dedicated his life to overturning it. He filed a minority report. He suffered. You know, he was only restored. They must have been so mad at him. He was only restored... Um, 
to the fellowship kind of uh, posthumously of one of those places he was thrown out of in 2018. (laughs) Now that's annoyed. Yeah. (laughs) So that's how it's worked in history. Of course, the people we hear about are Wilberforce and these people. These are establishment figures. These are Church of England, um, well-to-do, influential people in Parliament. But he was first. He was first from the margins. So what about a current example? Can we just do one more? Universalism. Let's just go one more. So... Universalism is the theory, and there's actually different theories, but it's essentially the theory that God will redeem the whole of creation, including all the people who've lived. Okay, so that's its basic premise. Calvinism says that God doesn't want to reconcile everybody. Um, Opinion warning, you know I do this. Uh, I think Calvinism is borderline evil. Other opinions are available. (laughs) Arminianism says God can't make people choose him. But really? Really? So if someone was going to walk off a cliff, would you say, actually, I'm not... I'm not going to help because maybe they want to. If they were going to choose to spend all eternity in hell, would they really choose to reject God? Universalism says that God wants to reconcile everybody and can. Now, next slide. There's some problems with universalism because there's a thing called hell. So either hell contradicts universalism, and that's that. We choose to believe or not. Hell maybe is a mythical vision of an alternate future which we don't have to choose, or maybe hell is real but temporary. But does God, the same God who tells us to love our enemies, decide to send most of humanity for the whole of history to eternal punishment in hell? Now, I'm not trying to sell universalism to you, although maybe I just have, but I do want to suggest it's a really credible and legitimate question to pose to ourselves. And you would think, in this kind of modern age of intellectual free thought, that perhaps we could have a sensible conversation about it. But that is not proving to be the case. We have the next slide. Just have a quick look at those with a different eye. Do you think we've maybe been programmed to see them differently to how they're written? You see where it says all people, all things, all people. I looked up all in the Greek. It means all. (laughs) Could it be that God's intention for the whole of creation is bigger than we think? Is there an ultimate ethic that's bigger than the one we've been teaching about what God intends to ultimately do with his creation? Can we have the next slide, please? 
Oh, it's the video. I think we have a slide missing, but don't worry. Um, it's not just me who's saying this, because if it was, clearly you should be very worried that if, it, if it's just me spouting this stuff. But the sort of people who filed a minority report around universalism include all of the church fathers for the first 300 years of Christianity, the whole of the Eastern Church still teaches the hope that everyone will be saved. Karl Barth, the most influential theologian of the 20th century. Cardinal Newman, the most influential Catholic theologian of the 20th century. Callistos Ware, the most influential British um, Orthodox theologian of the 20th century. These are not minor figures of thought. And yet, and yet, things haven't really changed as much as they should have. And I'll come back to that after we have a song followed by a clip. A clip, <laughs> not followed by a song. That's nice, isn't it? There's a resolution in Minority Report. But sadly, we haven't reached a resolution in the Christian church in discussing these matters. Could we just have the next slide, please? Peter Enns made this statement. It's heartbreaking, if you really think about it. Church is too often the most risky place to be spiritually honest. Peter Enns was removed from his position of a theology lecturer at um, an evangelical institution in the US for publishing a book that they didn't agree with. He'd been there for 14 years. He knows what that means, because he paid a price. We have the next slide, please. So I just want to ask you a question. Who is filing a minority report in your life? Who's so conservative still here that you wonder whether they ever joined the quest? They're filing a minority report in your life. Who's so out there that you wonder what's Christian about anything that they say? They're filing a minority report in your life and in the life of Q Church. And it's not that you should necessarily agree with anything that they say, although it's amazing what you learn when you listen. But the point is not that. The point is the freedom to express those views is priceless. And I really hope you know, I really hope you know how precious it is here, how rare, 
how precious, that you can have those conversations and someone can say something and you think, I don't agree with one word of that, and yet you come back into the same place as them and you have a dialogue together. That freedom is what can save Q Church from corruption, from institutionalization, and from fear. Because let's face it, that's the majority dynamic. That's what, unless you stop it, is likely to happen even here. Even here, people will start to annoy you too much. And you say, well, to be honest, Q Church doesn't really stand for that. Starts very subtle. I'm not saying you're doing it. I don't think you are. But it could happen. And I would just say this morning, don't let it happen. Don't let it happen. Because people need that place. They're hungry for that place. I just want to finish with a fourth clip. I think I've probably messed things up again, but uh, go with me. Go with me. I'll read more carefully next time. I might even use my glasses another time. <laughs> and then there's a possibility I'll see what's written. So Rob Bell, who many of you will have heard of, he was voted one of Time Magazine's 100 most influential people in the world. Not Christians or religious people. People. 100 most influential people in the world. And then he wrote... Love wins, which poses the question of universalism. He doesn't even teach uh, that it's definitely the case, but he poses the question. He poses the question. There's a very famous tweet from John Piper, uh, the godfather of American evangelicalism, who tweeted, farewell, Rob Bell. He cancelled him. And he moved him outside of the boundary in a single tweet. And the last clip is just a little bit about what happened to him. And I'm actually going to let him finish my talk because it's better and more powerful than anything I could come up with. So let me leave you with him. So I started doing club and theater tours in 2006. The venues kept getting bigger. I mean, like solid. I was like doing the rooms that my favorite bands do. It was that like, whoa. And then Love Wins came out in 2011. And that fall I did a club and theater tour. And I, I'll never forget the booking agent saying, yeah, tickets aren't selling that well. And then, I mean, I would go to a town where I, where last time I was there, it sold out with a thousand people, 1,200 people. And I'd walk out on stage and there'd be 50 people uh, huddled in the middle of this cavernous theater. And a friend of mine, I remember saying, dude, you lost your audience. I had, I had to make peace with, maybe you had your moment, 
and now the rest of your life you'll just quietly sort of fade and you'll have your life with your family you'll go surfing you'll figure out something else to do Kristen and I had this running joke from Spinal Tap maybe I'd sell shoes oh, you, I think you're at 11 um, so I had to go through all that that was the fall of 2011 I just didn't remember that. It took a while. It was like a death. So now it's six years later. And there's like people buying a ticket to sit on the floor <laughs> when it's literally standing room only. I, I have a, a level of gratitude. May you hear the bass notes in a culture that is more and more treble. May you swim in a deeper stream, realizing that you haven't left the tradition when you ask the question, when you go on the journey, when you're filled with curiosity, that is the tradition. May you be comforted that every dimension of your story, struggle, and inner life can be named in its rage, anger, betrayal, joy, connection, peace, love. It can all be given expression because it's all part of what it means to be human. And the divine may even be found in some of the parts that you would most wish to keep down. May you come to believe that there's more going on here that we're not alone, that spirit is speaking to each of us. May you in those moments of disruption, not dig in your heels and keep repeating the cliches, but may you allow yourself to be broken and open up. May you ask yourself, this is so difficult, but I wonder what's going to be created out of even this. And when you find yourself stressed, worried, anxious about the state of our world, may you remember that it's at its worst when it's at its absolute worst, is often when you're ready for imagination about just what might be possible. And my brothers and sisters, may grace and peace be with you every step of the way. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another Q York podcast. Now, if you've enjoyed what you've heard today, then we would love to hear from you. Feel free to drop us an email to info at qyork.co.uk and let us know who you are and where you're listening from. Don't forget there are blogs and all sorts of media to be enjoyed at qyork.co.uk, which are welcome to browse at your leisure. Until next time, enjoy the quest. <laughs>